Well, good morning. If you want to turn, we're in Acts 15 today, and that's where we're going to be camped out. And uh, that's on page 638, if you're using the Bible in front of you. Um, this is a lot of information in one, in one uh, sermon. And so uh, something I'm doing today that sometimes I don't do is I'm going to stick to my manuscript today. So if you see me looking and down a lot, just know that if I don't do this, we'll be here till 1230. So um, now I, uh, I, I doubt that anyone came in this morning and thought to themselves, man, I hope this morning's sermon is going to be about a long, drawn-out, first-century theological debate, because that sounds super exciting. <clears throat> well, good news to you. Today's sermon is about a first-century theological debate, uh, but it had this debate ended in a different way. It would have gutted the gospel of its power. It would have limited Christianity to simply just this small sect within Judaism instead of a worldwide movement. And I can almost guarantee that we wouldn't be sitting here this morning. So, on the surface, it might not sound super exciting and intensely practical to, uh, to go through this and to look at it. But if we're not students of history, we're destined to repeat it. And I would suggest that we're in just as much danger of losing the gospel and gutting it of its life-changing power here in the 21st century as the church was in the first century. So in our text this morning, we're going to look at, uh, to see what some well-meaning religious people wanted to make an adjustment to the gospel. But gospel revision is always gospel reversal. Revision of the good news inevitably results in bad news. So here's our outline. Look, I even, did, I even did slides this week, okay? Now, Dusty's applauding me because he's only been working on me for like four years to start this. And so uh, I tried to... There, the reason I thought this was important to do is because there's a whole lot of information here, and, and I don't think we need to camp out on this for three or four weeks. I think we can go through this information in a week, but there's a lot here, and there's a lot in Acts 15 that is sort of a, a, a linchpin to move the gospel forward the rest of the book of Acts. So it is important that we look at this, but it's important that we're concise about it too. So the outline, we're going to look at these three things, the debate, the decision, and then the implications that come out of that. So let's look at the first thing is the debate. Uh, but I think before we do that, it's time, we should just take a quick look at how we got here. After Peter has his vision in Acts 11, where God declares un-things, unclean things clean and makes it very clear that his intention is also to include the Gentiles into the family of God by grace through faith in Jesus, right? You remember that in Acts 11 with the sheet that fell? Barnabas and Paul are sent north from Jerusalem to a city called Antioch, and here uh, a lot of Hellenistic Jews, that means that they're Jewish by heritage but Gentile by culture, they're by heritage, they're Jews, and they were born into Jewish families, but they live as though they're Gentiles. They're coming to faith as well as a lot of Gentiles, and Paul and Barnabas spend a whole year discipling them. He's discipling the believers in this new multi-ethnic congregation 
It's the first time the disciples were called Christians, by the way. That means little Christ. When you think about it, it's, it's complementary at the same time because it's, it's little Christ, and that's how we're to live. So it's the first time in history that these Hellenistic Jews are coming into Christ that that word is used to define followers of Jesus. So then the Antioch church sends Barnabas and Paul out on what we now refer to as Paul's first missionary journey. And they go to Cyprus, and then they go up through Asia Minor. And all along the way, we're seeing both Jews and a a whole lot of Gentiles respond to the gospel. Now, there's a whole lot of opposition that comes their way from the Jews along the way. Barnabas and Paul, they arrive back in Antioch, and they report that God has indeed opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That's what we looked at last week. And then in chapter 15, we have a fight breakout, and that's what we're going to look at today. So that, that's a really general overview of where we've been to get us to this point. The real turning point in the, in the, in the Gentiles coming to know Christ, could, some people could say that it was Paul coming to know Christ, but it was actually, uh, evidence would support that it goes back to Peter's vision. So Peter, this Jew by heritage and Jew by practice, is seeing God tell him, as you start being the mouthpiece for the gospel, this is going to go out to a whole broader audience. And he believed God. He took God at his word. We're going to see Peter stand up and defend that today. Look at, uh, look at Acts chapter 15 with me. Um, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Now, this is coming right off of the heels of what we looked at last week, that there's, there's much celebration about the gospel moving. You remember that's how we ended last week. And it starts with that, but, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Okay. So apparently, a group of men from Judea come down in elevation from Jerusalem but up north in terms of geography, to this ethnically diverse church in Antioch. They they take a look at what's going on with Gentiles in the church and basically think to themselves, and maybe even out loud, this is out of control. And they, they start teaching these fairly new believers something that they hadn't heard before. And this teaching, it draws Paul and Barnabas into a really sharp disagreement with them. Now, Luke summarizes what they were teaching in two verses, in verse 1 and in verse 5. Verse 1, Luke interprets, Luke tells us what he was teaching in verse 1. He says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the first claim they make. And and verse 5 is, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So these men were basically teaching that if these Gentiles wanted to be made right with God, then not only did they need to believe in Jesus, they needed to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. What they're saying is believing in Jesus is not enough. You need to be circumcised, become Jewish, and obey the law of Moses. Now, this is the point where Barnabas and Paul both blow a gasket. That's, that's Greek. The text simply says that they had no small dissension and debate with them. 
Luke's such a polite author. But that's, that's got to be a vast understatement of what's happening here. I want you to imagine voices raised, spit flying, something just short of throwing punches here. That's most likely what's happening. So this debate is sharp. It's intense. And apparently unresolved. So the church decides to send Paul and Barnabas along with a few others to go up to Jerusalem to get a a definitive statement on the issue from the authority figures there, the apostles. So before we go any further, let's just stop and ask a question. Where on earth is this coming from? We, We pick up this text in the 21st century, and we might look at it and say, why are they fighting about this? Why are they fighting about circumcision of all things? But there are two things I think we need to understand about this debate that are going on here in the background. The first is that this debate is the result of a cultural clash. There is a major clash in culture happening here. It's no secret that Jews and Gentiles mixed about as well as oil and water do. In the first century, a Jewish man would, would regularly thank God in his prayers, among other things, that God had not made him a Gentile. Why did Jews look down on Gentiles like that? First, they considered Gentiles to be unclean. Jews had all these ceremonial purity laws outlined in the Old Testament that they followed religiously. There were certain foods they couldn't eat or they would be unclean. There were certain fabrics they couldn't wear or they would be unclean. There were, if there was mold growing in their home, they were considered unclean. If they had accidentally touched certain things or were anywhere near a dead body, they would become unclean. Now, those ceremonial clean laws, they might sound strange to us, but they had, a, they had a threefold purpose. There were three main purposes for all these laws in the Old Testament. I'm going to try my best to explain this to you very briefly. And these were all in place long before the FDA was a thing to govern these things. So God put certain animals that were the primary culprit for carrying diseases in the unclean list for the Jews for their own protection. God did that on purpose. There were certain animals that were, that were used to carry disease and were main culprits of that. So God, for their own protection, had put those in the category of being unclean. And these ceremonial laws uh, weren't only for protection, but they were also for preservation. Obe- obedience to these laws made the Jewish people kind of peculiar. They made them distinct in their, in the, to these Gentile neighbors. And that was the point. God had showed them and revealed to them and entrusted the Jewish people with the truth about who he was. He wanted them to be different, to be a beacon to shine truth about who he was into the world. So he didn't want them intermarrying. He didn't want them being like-minded with the nations around them. He didn't want them to blend the edges. He didn't want them to lose their distinction. He didn't want them to lose their light. They were to be a holy and separate nation, a holy and separate people. They were supposed to be a showcase that, that, that would reveal the one true God to the nations that they were in and the ones around them. Do you know how hard it would have been for a Jewish boy to go out on a date with a Gentile girl? 
I mean, it would have been really, really hard. They couldn't eat the same food. They couldn't go to the same restaurants. They couldn't wear the same clothes. It would have been extremely difficult. And that was the point. That was the point. So the Old Testament ceremonial law was for protection. It was for preservation. But most importantly, it was for preparation. The ceremonial laws that seemed to not make sense to us, they were preparing them for what? Well, I'm glad you asked. Preparation for Jesus. That's what these things were set aside for. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who became unclean so that we could become clean. Without even trying, Jews would consistently become unclean. And would then need to be cleansed by offering sacrifices of atonement. And these sacrifices all were meant to point forward to Jesus The ceremonial laws were meant to prepare Jewish hearts for the fact that they really couldn't obey the law on their own strength. That without even trying, they would become unclean and they would need to be cleansed and they would need to be atoned for. But like the rest of us who all struggle with the sin of pride, they figured that at least their self-righteous attempts at keeping the law were better than those filthy, unclean Gentiles who didn't even try to keep it. So the Jews considered the Gentiles to be unclean, and that created a cultural clash. And now that God is drawing Gentiles to himself, the thing that used to divide Jews and Gentiles and keep them separate are now coming to the surface, and they're causing friction. Just imagine an after-church potluck in the early church. The Jews would bring all their kosher foods, all neat, clean, and tidy, and then walk the Gentiles with a big rack of baby rack ribs and a platter of pulled pork. And they're thinking they're doing a great thing, but the Jews are like, who brought that here? See, the Jews are offended by their unclean ways. And the second thing, the Jews were offended by the Gentiles' idolatry. Gentile culture was this highly idolatrous and polytheistic. They had gods for everything. They had temples for everything. And, they, and, and they were, there were animals that were sacrificed and offered to these false gods, but their animals were strangled and not drained of their blood. Now, that's important to recognize because the Jews considered this to be gross and offensive because to them, the blood of the animal being shed was also sacred. So, they would, so the Jews would actually slit the animal's throat and they'd bleed the animals out before sacrificing them. And almost all the meat that you would find in Gentile marketplaces was processed through the Gentile temples. And that's why they would strangle the animals before they did the, uh, the sacrifice because then they could still keep the blood in the meat and therefore sell the meat after the sacrifice was over. So not only are these Gentiles bringing pork to the community meals, but most likely bringing stuff that had been sacrificed to idols, which would, again, be offensive to the Jews. So the Jews look down on the, on the Gentiles because they're unclean, because they're idolatrous, and because they're immoral. Now, 
unlike the Jews, the, the Greco-Roman world was pretty loose. It was pragmatic when it came to moral standards. I mean, s- sexual immorality and promiscuity was normal. It was rampant. The idolatry that the Gentile worship had was more than, not, more than often involved uh, sexual immorality and prostitution within the temple. So the Jews had a a general self-righteous disdain for Gentile culture anyway. And they considered it to be unclean, idolatrous, and now it's just immoral. But now, God's bringing Jews and Gentiles together in this new multi-ethnic community of faith of the church. And there's this clash that happens, and it's causing constant friction in terms, in terms of expectations. Now, people are coming to know Christ in droves, and that's exciting. But as different understandings of Scripture are hitting people and they're starting to live out their faith, that's when the cultural stuff starts to rise to the surface. So either the Jews need to lower their standards to put up with the Gentiles, or the Gentiles need to adopt the Jewish standards And that's creating a dilemma. And this group comes from Jerusalem, and they see all this multi-ethnic church in Antioch, and they they freak out. We need to get all these Gentiles circumcised and obeying the law of Moses. This is out of control. That's part of it. It's a cultural clash, and it's, it's hitting, and it's big. And maybe you've experienced something like that before. Well, that's not how we do things here, right? Well, that's not how I was raised. You ever marry into a family that they did things very different than your family? Well, wait, you don't do that at Christmas? I don't even know what you're talking about. Right? You don't know anything's vastly important until all of a sudden these cultural clashes come up. I mean, they have to be dealt with, right? That's what's happening in the church here. When I say, did you ever marry someone, it makes it sound like it's like this every other day. Oh, yeah, one time. Anyway. (laughs) That's not in my notes. Stick to your notes, Adam. <clears throat> All right, so the other thing that, that the dispute is, is it's, it's a, a doctrinal division. So now you've got doctrine coming up. People are saying, this is, this is what I believe, this is how I've always believed, and this is how they believe. These teachers are not just saying that the Gentiles need to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. That's not all they're saying. They're saying that... The, uh, They need to, the Gentiles need to do these things, verse 1, in order to be saved. They're not saying that they need to uh, address these things and obey these things and get circumcised just to ease the tension. They're coming in and they're theologizing it by saying that if the Gentiles who have come to know Jesus don't go get circumcised, then they're not really believers. They're basically saying, we don't accept you as Gentiles, and neither does God. That's what they're saying to the people. It's the Jewish fulfillment of Jewish promises. If you want to have all the benefits of salvation, you need to be Jewish too. So here's their math. It's going to be on the screen. Jesus plus circumcision plus the law equals salvation. That's their math. What's motivating them to write the equation like that? 
What was motivating them to teach this kind of doctrine? Well, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They were most likely concerned with holiness. They're looking at all these Gentiles with such obviously pagan and immoral backgrounds, and they're saying, listen, if these Gentiles are saved by grace, if they are clean and accepted before God because of Jesus, and that's it, then what's their motivation for change? What's their motivation for cleaning up their lives and becoming holy? So in addition to the grace of Jesus, we need to layer the law on top so that the Gentiles will know how to live. Jesus plus circumcision plus law equals salvation. And Paul and Barnabas hear this and they say, absolutely not. That equation is 100% wrong. The equation is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. That's the gospel. And anything else is not. Any gospel revision is gospel reversal. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus has done everything to make us right with God. On the cross, Jesus took our uncleanness. He took our idolatry. He took our immorality. He became sin so that we might become righteousness. We don't add anything to the equation. Jesus is our substitute, and Jesus is enough. We don't have any work left to do. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Paul writes a letter, and he says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And in Romans 3, verse 20, he says in another letter, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So these teachers from Jerusalem are teaching one thing, and Paul and Barnabas are teaching another, and apparently the debate doesn't get resolved, so they decide to go to Jerusalem, they call in the big guns, form a church council, and get an authoritative decision on the matter. We're going to get authoritative figures from both sides sitting around the table, we're going to get a final decision made on this. That's part two of our outline, is a decision. The first church council, if you've ever been associated with a local church for more than three minutes, boards, councils, whatever you want to call them, none of it sounds fun. And I can tell you from being on the inside, you're right. <laughs> the church council is made up of the apostles and elders of the church in Jerusalem, and we read in verse 7 that there was much debate over this matter. And after the debate, Luke tells us for the that the decisive voices that brought a resolution to the conflict. And the first key voice is that of the apostle Peter. Now, we haven't seen Peter in a while. And he basically says, hey, God made a choice that the gospel would be for the Gentiles too. And he chose me to bring it to them. This whole Gentile inclusion thing was God's doing. Look at verse 8. And God, this is, this is Peter, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter says God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles too. He didn't make a distinction between them and us as Jews. The Gentiles are just as accepted by God as we are. Why? 
because he cleansed their heart by faith. And that word cleansed, I believe, is used by Peter very intentionally and carefully. These unclean Gentiles are clean. On what basis? Did they start obeying the Mosaic law? Is that why they're clean? No. Were they circumcised? Is that why they've been cleansed? No. God cleansed their hearts by faith. They simply believed in Jesus and God cleansed them. He made them acceptable to him and he sent his spirit to live in them, which is very much temple language that the devout Jews would have understood. They're as clean as the holy of holies in the temple because God has now come to dwell inside them. Verse 10, look at this. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's Peter's question back to the council. He basically says, why are you questioning God on this matter? Why are you placing a yoke on the neck of these Gentiles that neither our Jewish fathers nor we have been able to carry? Now, what's the yoke he's talking about? Circumcision and the law. You might remember from a few weeks ago, a yoke is this harness that that we call a beast of burden or like an ox in a field would wear when they pull a plow. It's a weight. It's a burden. Peter's using a a word picture here, and he's saying the law is like a heavy burden that goes around the neck, and neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear it. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're tired of the burden of trying to make yourself clean and acceptable before God, Jesus says, drop the burden, let me carry it, rest. And in verse 11 of Acts 15, it says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter's words are really clear here. The Jewish hope of being made right with God is not through obeying the law. It is by grace, through faith in Jesus, period. And the Gentile hope of being made right with God is not through circumcision and the law. It is by grace, through faith in Jesus, period. And Peter rests his case. No further questions, Your Honor, right? The whole assembly just gets silent, so Peter's voice evidently carries some weight here. Then, breaking the silence, Paul and Barnabas speak up, and they start sharing about this first missionary journey, and they start talking about the miraculous signs that God did through them among the Gentiles. And after they finish speaking, another authoritative voice comes into play, and that's James, the brother of Jesus. Now, it's not the same James that in chapter 12 was martyred. The brother of Jesus, James, was this prominent leader in the Jerusalem church, and he seems to be the one that's moderating the council meeting. And he says that Barnabas and Paul just shared about the inclusion of the Gentiles lines up with the prophetic writing of Amos. And in verse 19, he goes on to say this. 
Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So what does that mean? James says this, we shouldn't trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. Trouble them with what? Circumcision and the law. We shouldn't put a heavy backpack of the law on the Gentiles' shoulders. But then he immediately says that they should abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual morality, strangling animals, and blood. Now, it seems like a kind of a weird list until you remember all of those things are associated with with the pagan temple worship. Food sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality, temple prostitution, strangled animals so that the blood didn't come out of the meat. And when he lists these things, he isn't burdening the Gentiles with the backpack of the law. He's drawing out the implications of the gospel. He's drawing out for them that if you believe in Jesus and that he is your savior, that he is the perfect sacrifice, that he is the one who makes you right with God, then don't be worshiping at the pagan temples. Don't be engaging in the temple prostitution. And then James goes on to say this in verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Here's what he means by that. Wherever the gospel is preached, there will be Jewish people who are familiar with and following the Mosaic law. So Gentile believers will do well not to become a stumbling block for them to come to know Christ. If you're a Gentile and you come to know Christ, know that you can't live however you lived before and still be in the gospel and not be a stumbling block to people in the Jewish culture who haven't come to know Christ yet. Even though you have the freedom in Christ to eat whatever meat you want. Jewish people are going to really trip over food sacrifice to idols and blood still in the meat as a result of a strangled animal. It would be best, it would be best if you Gentiles simply gave that up so that the gospel isn't hindered amongst your, Gentile, amongst your Jewish neighbors. Does that make sense? James is, is drawing out the implications of the gospel. Remember a few weeks ago, whenever I, I talked about the gospel is disruptive. It's disruptive. And what he's saying is, can't you give up just these little things out of love for your Jewish neighbors who don't yet know Jesus? In essential things, Theologically essential things. Jesus is the Son of God. He was our all-atoning sacrifice for our sins. In essential things, we must have unity. In non-essential things, there is liberty. Some people say it's a sin to get a tattoo or drink alcohol. Over here, people say that it's not. And instead of arguing and fighting over these things... We practice liberty in those things, and we allow personal conviction to guide those things. But in all things, we need to have clarity. And that's what James is trying to do here. He's trying to provide clarity by saying, we're about to make a decision here. We're about to hand down an edict here. If it's essential, we need to have unity. The essential thing is that 
Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. So we're not going to require this of Gentiles. But the, the other things, they're, they're non-essential, so, but we need to have unity. I mean, we need to have liberty here. I'm not going to require, the Bible doesn't require these, these uh, Gentiles to live a certain way exactly how the Jewish people do, and vice versa. But in all things, let us, be, let us have charity and clarity. Let us, let us be generous. That I would be willing to forego something in my life if it's a stumbling block for you. I'm going to be, uh, your, your, you should be the benefactor of the gospel's generosity in my life. So maybe I, I marry someone who is a teetotaler and says, no, absolutely no alcohol in my house at all, never, it never touches your lips, ever. And that's not my conviction, but that's a real stumbling block maybe. This isn't my story, but if it is, then I would, I would maybe, I would say, listen, I don't want this to be something that turns into a fight. We do not line up theologically on this one thing. But I'm not going to make it a hill worth dying on. I'm going to be generous in my interpretation of it for your benefit. Does that make sense? That's what James is asking of the, of the Gentile people. You might not see anything wrong with it yet. But believe me, it will become a stumbling block to devout Jews who don't know Jesus yet. We're asking this camp to make concessions on your behalf for the sake of the gospel, you need to meet them on that. That's essentially what he's saying. So the council makes this definitive decision, and they side with Paul and Barnabas, that God has accepted the Gentiles as Gentiles. They don't need to become Jews to become acceptable to God. They're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we see in the rest of the passage that the Jerusalem council members decide to write a letter to the church in Antioch announcing their decision on this matter. And they send it back with Paul and Barnabas, along with two other representatives, Silas and Judas, probably to prove that Paul and Barnabas didn't forge the letter, and the letter is read to the church. Verse 31 tells us, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So the crisis is averted, and the purity of the gospel wasn't lost. Now, what does that mean for us today? What are the implications of all of this for us today? That's a lot of historical information. I breezed through it. That's a lot there. I hope it made sense. But what are the implications for us? Well, the first one is this. God loves and accepts you just as you are. This is good news. You don't need to clean yourself up to become acceptable to God. In other words, the gospel is not religion. The gospel is not religion. But the gospel is not good advice for you to follow. It is good news about what Jesus has done. Religion says, here's how you can improve yourself and get to God. But the gospel says you can't get to God. You're too much of a mess. So God has come to you. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. But the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, pull yourself up, make yourself better, try harder, do more, carry this weight, carry this backpack. 
And the gospel says, Jesus already carried it, rest. Religion says God would be happier with you if you were a better person. But the gospel says there's no future version of yourself that God delights in more than who you are right now in Christ. There's no 2.0 version of you that God's waiting to erupt. The gospel says you're already made clean. You see, the religion says you need to clean yourself up to make yourself acceptable to God. Put on your Sunday best. Give yourself a little pep talk in the, car, in the parking lot of the church. Put a smile on. Everyone stop fighting. I'm going to like you for another hour. Let's go into church. That's what religion says. The gospel says you're already made clean and acceptable. You've been made right by God by grace alone. It's a free gift. Through faith alone, by believing in Jesus, in Christ alone, because he's the only one that can make us right with God. Do you really believe that at your heart level? When you picture God looking at you, What's the expression he has on his face? I want you to think about that. What's the expression he has on his face? Is there someone in your life that you've, you really felt uh, a, a weight they, they had a weight in your life. They, they held a lot of respect in your life. And maybe you moved for their approval and you just never seemed to get it. That person who, no matter what you did, you couldn't get it right. Could never please them. My story doesn't have that person being my father. My father never interacted with me like that. My dad never put pressure on me to perform. He was always my biggest cheerleader. I didn't give him a whole lot to cheer about in my early years. We always found something positive to say, or he just didn't say anything. Now that I'm almost 40 years old, I look back and am thankful that there were moments where he could have really berated me and he chose just to not say anything. I used to hate his silence. I felt like it was saying something to me, and it was. I only wanted to hear positive things. But maybe your story is, and I've worked with several people who are like this, it's like they spend their whole life trying to get the approval of that person, and no matter what happens, that expression on the face that looks back at them is one of disappointment and disdain. I remember I did something stupid, and I looked at my dad, and I said, Dad, I'm really sorry. You're probably really mad at me, and he said, oh, I was mad at you two days ago. I just can't get over my disappointment. I don't know what I did wrong, and he walked away. And that felt so much worse. I just wish it were, I would rather, have been, I would rather have hit me. 
I actually felt like I deserved that. I deserved to be hit. But somehow my dad in that moment looked at it and said, no, 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 like somehow your actions right now as your father are my fault. Somewhere along the line, I did something wrong. And that made me feel so much worse. Like, you didn't do anything wrong here. I'm the one who did something wrong. But I'll never forget that moment, sitting at my kitchen table at my house, and my dad looks at me and he says those words. I'm beyond angry. That was a couple days ago. I'm just super disappointed, and I don't know what I did wrong. That expression on his face, I can still see it. If I was a good artist, I could map it out for you. It's burned into my brain. disappointment. I'm not saying that because my dad was wrong in that moment. I'm saying that that's the image that was burned into my brain. And so when I put myself in front of God and God looks at me, what's the expression on his face? If it's anything other than a smile, if it's anything other than a smile, You may have given mental energy and mental thought to the data points of the gospel, but it hasn't sunken deep into your heart yet. Because when God looks at you, he is delighted in what he sees. If you've placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, then when he looks at you, he smiles because he sees the righteousness of his own son. You don't add anything to the equation. You don't have to become moral to be accepted by God. You don't have to clean yourself up to be accepted to God. You don't have to become religious to be acceptable to God. You don't add anything to the equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What does that mean? This is really important for us to grapple with. It means that anyone, anyone can come to Jesus. And by believing in Jesus, they are immediately made acceptable to God because of what Jesus has done. People don't need to change their lives to get right with God. They simply need to believe in Jesus because he's enough. If you want it to sound super theological, you could say sanctification is not a prerequisite for justification. Becoming holy, sanctification, is not a prerequisite for justification being declared right with God. How many people refuse to step foot in the doors of a church or come to a small group or or come to an outreach or meet with you personally to talk about Jesus or want to have anything to do with Jesus and the people of Jesus because they are convinced that they have too much garbage in their lives to be acceptable to God. Some of them might be sitting in this room right now. And Satan has crippled society with that lie. And the church has thrown gasoline on that dumpster fire for far too long. To make people feel like they have to be cleaned up before they can come to Jesus is a lie straight from the pits of hell. 
God loves you and accepts you just as you are. And he does that because of Jesus. But the second takeaway, and this is important, God loves you too much to leave you as you are. The fact that God accepts us as sinners doesn't mean that he's okay with our sin. The gospel is not religion, but it's also not relativism either. That, you know, like you're okay, I'm okay, everyone's okay, do whatever you want. That's relativism. Hey, if it's it's right for you, then do it. I mean, I'll do it, but relativism is, hey, you do what you want, I'll do what I want, we're all okay, we'll do whatever we want. God loves us all, God's grace, amen, hallelujah, right? Let's just sing some songs, get emotional about it, and then we'll leave and do whatever we want. God will change you. He will insist on your change. Now, I'm not going to dime people out in this room because I haven't run anything by them first, but I could rattle off for you story after story of people that you're sitting next to in this room who would tell you to your face that three years ago they would have never dreamed of making some of the decisions they're making right now, and the only reason they're making them is because of Jesus. It wasn't because someone said, hey, listen, this is the law. This is how we obey things at Journey Church. If you want to be part of Journey Church, here's the rules. Look around. If you can find a list of rules to be a part of Journey Church, please let me know because I did not write it and we didn't sanction it. God will change you. He will insist on it. He will want to make you holy, and he will, over time, form your character so that it reflects his. It's a process. He will sanctify you. It's not salvation by works. It's salvation that works. God will change you, but listen, he will not change you with his law. He will change you with his grace. You see, if we're motivated by the law to change and to be holy, if we're motivated by some external list of do's and don'ts, that's the spiritual equivalent of putting on a heavy backpack full of stones, and the only thing that will keep us going is either pride or fear. No, I'll carry it. I don't need any help. I don't need any help. No, don't take this backpack off me. I got it. I got it. Well, I can't take it off because then people will see me as weak. When we sin, we think to ourselves, I'm better than this. I can do better than this. I just need to try harder pride. And if we succeed, what do we become? More proud. Or when we're tempted to sin, we might think, if I do this, those people might look down on me, fear. And if we don't succeed, what do we become? More fearful. Pride and fear are good motivators. I'm not a fast runner. With an angry bear chasing me, I'd probably be pretty fast. I don't think I can climb a tree very fast, but... If I got a, like a wildcat chasing me, 
Well, he could probably climb the tree. That's a bad analogy. Let's just strike that from the record. They're good, pride and fear are good motivators. And, and they will, they'll have some success in modifying our behavior. They'll have some success in managing our sin. But carrying this type of heavy spiritual backpack, it's exhausting. And it will never change our hearts. True heart change doesn't happen simply through my external obedience to the rules, to the law. But when we take off the backpack and rest in God's grace, that's how God truly changes our hearts and rewires our motivations for obedience. One of the big things we had to do, when I was in basic training for the Army, one of the big things we had to do is pass the final two-week FTX. So for two weeks, you go out in the woods, and you live in the woods for two weeks. And part of that is like this long, I forget how many miles, road march, but it seemed to last forever. Road march with the full 80-pound rucksack on your back. So you're in full combat, regalia, you're carrying your weapon, you've got your helmet on, everything is heavy, everything is heavy. And it just so happened that for about three quarters of ours, it was pouring down rain. It wasn't raining when we started, so none of us put on our rain gear. And we wanted to save some pounds in our backs, so none of us really packed it either. So carrying 80 pounds along this, this road march that seemed to last for days... Earlier on in basic training, I had been doing push-ups because I got in trouble. I know it's hard to believe. I'm glad you're all sitting down. And uh, actually, I got in trouble for imitating one of my drill sergeants, and he caught me. I was doing an impression. <laughs> it was a pretty good one, too, by the way. But he caught me doing an impression of him. A guy in the barracks had bought a drill sergeant teddy bear to send home to his girlfriend, and I took the hat off of the drill sergeant teddy bear and put it on my little like baby Huey hat on my head and uh, started imitating the drill sergeant. He happened to walk in behind me while I was doing it, and everybody was laughing, ha-ha, and all of a sudden they were like... It was one of those, like, Billy Crystal, like, he's behind me, isn't it, moments. <laughs> anyway, uh, I had done... I've been doing push-ups, and I tore a muscle in my shoulder, and I felt it tear, but I didn't want to stop because I didn't want to have to go to the medical bay because that meant I probably wouldn't graduate with the platoon I was in, so I just fought through it and just lived on ibuprofen for the next, like, six weeks of my life. I know, super healthy. But I didn't tell anybody. And so on this, on, this, on this hike, not only am I wearing 80 pounds on my back, but I've got a shoulder that is just killing me. And it's not like I can take ibuprofen while I'm hiking. So I tighten this right strap as tight as I can and loosen this left one just to take all the weight off my left side and put it on my right side. So when I got to the end of that and I got to take that backpack off, it felt amazing. It felt amazing. And I didn't even pay attention to the pain in my left shoulder anymore because I had taken the backpack off. And it felt so good. It felt so restful. I just stopped. I wasn't marching anymore. My situation hadn't really changed, by the way, but I was able to rest 
without the burden on my back. And that is how God truly changes our hearts. He rewires our motivations for obedience when we take this burden off of our backs and just lay it at his feet because he's already done the work to carry it for you. You see, the gospel of grace, it melts away our pride. It says you have zero credits here. The gospel of grace, it soothes our fear. It says you are loved and accepted on the basis of what Jesus has done and that can never be taken away from you. You do not have to be afraid. And when the gospel comes in and sinks into our hearts, it makes us grateful. It makes us fall in love with Jesus. And when you fall in love, you remove anything that's standing in between you and the object of your love. And you become like Jesus because you become like what you love. Our motivation is no longer external. It's no longer fear or pride. It's internal. It's thankfulness. It's love. Paul writes in Titus 2, 11 and 12, For the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, godly, and upright lives. Not the law of God but the grace of God. It's grace that erases our pride. It's grace that enables us to take off mask. It's grace that changes our heart. It's grace that makes us holy. It's grace that teaches us to love. It's grace that makes us like Jesus. It's grace that frees us from carrying this heavy spiritual backpack of self-justification and moral performance to, become, to, to bolster our own self-worth. The gospel of grace is not only how we come to faith, it's how we grow in faith. I'd like the band to come back up now. It's always an awkward moment, but they're like, does he mean now? Yes, I mean now. We're going to close this morning by preaching the gospel to ourselves through a song. Throughout history, when the church has lost its hold on the purity of the gospel, do you know what they do? Know what happens? Throughout history, when the church has lost its hold on the purity of the gospel, do you know what happens? We resurrect the law. We form long lists of do's and don'ts, and we judge everyone based off of their performance on those lists. We become Pharisees. We become judgmental. And we burden people with this heavy spiritual backpack that God never intended for them to carry. But Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. We are free, free, forever we're free from carrying the weight of a spiritual backpack of self-justification and moral performance of our worth. Come join the song of all the redeemed. God, thank you for that grace, that captivating truth that we are no longer carrying the burden of law. We get to carry the love of God in our hearts through the grace that's been given to us. We get that gift. We're not deserving of it. So we're free, free, forever we're free. And as we stand as a church, may we all join the song of the redeemed.